React.js began to standardize front-end web development around 2015. The core ideas around one-way data binding, JSX, and components caused many developers to embrace React with open arms. There's been a large number of educators that have emerged to help train developers wanting to learn React. A new developer learning React has numerous questions around frameworks, state management, rendering, and other best practices. In today's episode, those questions are answered by Ryan Florence, a co-founder of React Training. React Training is a company devoted to helping developers learn React, and React Training trains large companies like Google and Netflix how to use React. So Ryan has a strong understanding of how to help developers be productive with React, and in today's episode, he explains some of the fundamentals that commonly confuse new students of React. Ryan is also speaking at Reactathon, a San Francisco JavaScript conference taking place March 30th and 31st in San Francisco. This week, we'll be interviewing speakers from Reactathon. And if you're interested in JavaScript and the React ecosystem, then stay tuned. If you hear something you like, you can check out the Reactathon conference in person. Ryan Florence, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me. You've been part of the React community since the early days. How has React application development changed since the earliest days of the project? Yeah, I've been, um, like it was open source like seven years ago, and I've been using it about six years, which is kind of unheard of in the JavaScript world. <laughs> I've been blown away at how long it's how long it survived. But but honestly, React itself, there's kind of two Reacts, right? There's like there's React the library, and then there's like all caps React, like the whole community and ecosystem around it. React itself over the years, I haven't really seen it change much. There were small little tweaks in like uh, the way you would define components. But it went a good four or five years uh, w- without really changing until they released Hooks uh, last year. And uh, that's, that's when things, that, that was kind of the first real change that has happened in, in React application development. And to me, it, it got more in line with the uh, kind of the philosophy or the, the idea behind React. But the community itself, like everything around it, I think we've seen a few phases. There's kind of like the early adopter phase and then... Uh, we, uh, my business partner, Michael Jackson, and I, we built a thing called React Router, and that kind of helped helped expand the use of React because people now knew how to like React. Really, is just little little components, little parts of the page uh, that you can build. You can control the whole page or a small piece of the page, but people didn't really know how to put the whole thing together into like a full application, and that's kind of where React Router uh, helped adoption a bit there with React as well. And then, uh, and then Redux, we got the Redux phase. Dan Abramov is a brilliant developer and gave an amazing talk showing off uh, some stuff that he, he wanted to do. He wanted to do like time travel debugging. And he came up with this thing called Redux, super cool library. We we're all really impressed by it. And people started using Redux a lot. That phase is a little bit weird for me because a lot of what makes React great got pushed to the sidelines and, and people didn't even know that you could manage state in React. They thought that you had to bring in Redux to do it. And I think we lost lost some innovation that we may have had sooner. And then I think we're in the, a new phase now with hooks. And we have we have way more ability to, to compose behavior and our UI. 
There's my React over the years in a nutshell. <laughs> Let's talk about React pre-hooks for a little bit. So before there were hooks, what was the distinction between using a state manager like Redux versus just managing your state with the primitives that are available in React without Redux? Pre-hooks. That's what... Yeah, yeah. But like so, if, so, if we're, so before if, we had hooks... Before we talk about hooks, right. Yeah. So state management is a huge term. You have to manage state for a little counter. Click a button and the count goes up. And then you also have to manage state from like maybe you're caching your JSON responses from a server that you're sharing across your whole UI. So, so state management is a huge topic, I guess. And so Redux really shined, especially pre-hooks, for the kind of like caching data from your server use case. Uh, that may not be why it was designed, but that is definitely how it got used, is a screen shows up on the page, you make a request, uh, so you dispatch an action, hey, we just mounted this screen, and then you have maybe some middleware or something that goes and fetches data from the server and then puts that data into the Redux store, which is, you can just think of it as a cache. You could just think about it as like a variable <laughs> that you're that you're putting things in. And then uh, you could you could access that that data anywhere. So maybe you fetch the user or maybe you, you fetch a set of, of invoices and maybe you got two or three or 10 screens that need to list those invoices. You've got this client side cache of that data. Now, now you could use Redux for, for more things than that. That's how I've seen people use it for the most part. So uh, before hooks, it was, I think, probably the best way to manage that kind of data. I, I call that explicit data. So it's, it's data that you need to see, you need to know about versus implicit data, which is like data that you don't care about, state you don't care about as an app, like is a dropdown menu open? You know, if I've got a dropdown menu component, I don't care if it's open or not. That thing manages state on its own. Uh, so Redux wasn't really useful for that kind of a thing, but very useful for the, the, the bigger application level state. Were there any patterns around using Redux that, that caused applications to be built in a way that, that you know, wasn't architected maybe as, as soundly as it could have been architected in the absence of Redux? Like, were, were there a certain anti-patterns around using Redux where people kind of leaned on a client-side cache in a way that was maybe not ideal? Every app is different. But for me, one of my frustrations, uh, regrets, <laughs> I don't know what the word is, uh, with, with Redux was we kind of pushed away encapsulation. The idea that you could have a section of your application that could just work all on its own. It managed its own state. It knew uh, how to fetch its own data. You could just grab a grab an invoice component, dump it on a page. It would go fetch that invoice and manage that all itself. Or, or even the more the micro interactions like drop down menus and things. People would start start pushing that kind of state into Redux as well. Which now to use a, a drop down menu component. Not only do you have to bring in the component code, but now you've got to bring in this these things called reducers, and then you've got to combine that reducer into your application reducer. It, it basically, if you pushed all of your state into Redux, all the state of your app, which is what a lot of people did, or at least felt like they were supposed to do, if you push all that state into Redux, then there, there's no encapsulation, and now you're just building a, a, a monolith. And so when, when you don't have encapsulation, you also 
have a harder time composing things together in ways that you didn't didn't expect to. So yeah, I just I just kind of felt like that idea of shoving all your state into Redux kind of hurt hurt the idea of React that you can just have one small piece of the page take care of itself. And I, I gave a talk about this years ago at um, React Rally. I mean, that's a great point because I feel like in when I took computer science classes, there was a distinct anti-pattern around global variables. I just remember being told by yeah. people reviewing my code or computer science professors that you need to be very careful with global variables. You can get very carried away and it's a dangerous pattern. Yep. Yep. That, I mean, that's, that's basically how, ever, how Redux got used. It was, it, well, and, and there's like, there was education material and, and conversations on Twitter and conference talks that like, you need a state management library like Redux in order to use React. And so everyone would just shove all their state in there. In fact, I got up in front of one of our workshops and uh, there were there were about 60 people in the room and it was a React Fundamentals workshop. So we start showing them uh, React and I, I showed them back then it was with a class component, uh, just the function this.setState in a component, which is how you update an individual component just itself. Uh, so you call set state, give it some values, and then React will will update the screen for you based on that new state. And I started getting all these like puzzled looks from everybody. Uh, oh, that that's right. Sorry, this was an advanced workshop because they had been using React for like a couple of years. And everyone was just looking at me all weird. And in the first break, a few of them came up like, "What is what is this dot set state? I thought we can't do that." And I was like, "What do you mean you can't do that?" And they opened up their laptop and showed me, and they had a lint rule. Uh, so in JavaScript, you got linters um, to like keep you from, uh, I guess, using the bad parts of JavaScript, whatever. And they had a lint rule that disallowed them from using the primary API of React, which was set state. They could not even use React state. They had to use Redux's state. So yeah, it was a wild time. <laughs> and as we move forward in the timeline of React, you mentioned hooks as being transformational. Can you explain what hooks are and how they have changed application development? Yeah, so hooks hooks in React, they give us a new layer of composition. And we, we, we kind of had it before. You could you could twist components around. So so a component generally you think of like something that you can see on the page, right? It, it, it actually renders some HTML. And before hooks, if you wanted to abstract some behavior that didn't have any UI, like say you wanted to abstract subscribing to the scroll position of the window, or you wanted to abstract reading and writing to local storage, or maybe you wanted to get the user's geolocation. The browser has an API to say, hey, what's what's the geoposition or geolocation of the user right now? And none of those concerns have a UI, right? There's, there's nothing you see. There are no elements you need to render. But in React, the only tool we had was a component. And so we started building these kind of funny components that didn't render anything. They didn't return any elements. We just used them for their side effects. And then through some like really terrible looking syntax, we called them render props. Instead of passing elements into the content or the children of a component, you'd give it a JavaScript function. And then that function could then kind of yield out to you whatever state you were finding, that local storage value or that scroll position or the, the geolocation of the user. And then you could use that data to render some UI. And it, it worked great. I, I loved doing it that way. But um, 
we were twisting components into something that they they weren't for the sake of encapsulating that behavior and then sharing that that behavior or sharing that state that it figured out with the rest of your application. So we didn't have a great way to compose non-visual behavior. And so Hooks gives us that ability to compose non-visual behavior. Instead of having to do those kinds of things in components, we have these hooks. There are just a few basic ones. Uh, there are a couple for state, use state and use reducer. And so if you use these hooks, then those will cause your component to re-render. Those then can be composed inside of, sorry, let me back up. So we got the couple for state. Then we've got one called use effect. And use effect is the thing that allows you to, it's like the life cycle of a component, right? The component just showed up in the page. Now we want to go fetch some data or ask or subscribe to the user's geolocation. And so when you mix effect and use effect and use state, these two hooks, you can now make your own hook. So you can make your own hook called use scroll position. And then inside of that function, and that's what's beautiful about these hooks is they're just functions. There's, there's, no, there's no API to say to React, hey, this is a hook. It, it's literally just a JavaScript function. And if you use state and you use effect inside of your own custom use scroll position, you can return out of that thing the scroll position. And you can subscribe to the, to the window scroll event in the effect. And then in that effect, you can set the state of your use state hook that you made. So, so you can encapsulate all of that, the state of the position, the behavior to subscribe to that, even cleanup, so that when the component unmounts, you want to stop subscribing to that. And then you just return out whatever your current state is. And now anyone anywhere can just bring in your one little function, use scroll position. And whenever the scroll position changes, it's going to cause the component you used it in to re-render, and it's going to return to you what the user's location is. So now instead of us having to twist components to share this kind of behavior, we get plain functions. And that means we get composition for free. You can, these, are, these are just functions. So you can compose these the exact same way you compose any functions, which, which I think is, is super cool. A hook sounds similar to an observable from like there's the library RxJS, which allows you to build reactive systems in in JavaScript uh, out of observables that emit these events. How is a hook different than an observable? I'm not incredibly familiar with RxJS. I have goofed around with it a few times. So maybe people will be like, ah, Ryan doesn't know what he's talking (laughs) about here. But um, to me, observables kind of have a, a push API, right? They push values to you. You like subscribe to a thing and then give it a callback, and then it's going to push those values to you. A hook, you pull values. It has it has a return value. So instead of like a callback where a value gets pushed into the callback, instead you get to ask for a value when you want it. For me, that's kind of the main difference. And I find uh, pull APIs uh, a lot more composable um, and just kind of easier to, easier to deal with. I don't think they're as similar as it might seem because hooks hooks are not a general abstraction for programming they're a domain specific thing for react like they're twisted up all in the guts of react everywhere it's it's not something that you'd use outside of react it really just says if you use state and you you set some new state it's going to cause the whole thing to re-render and then the effect uh hook just lets you plug into the life cycle of that rendering so rxjs is a general pattern for any kind of programming 
hooks are, are simply for React and its render lifecycle and how to start a new one. Right. And it seems proof of the desirability of React that in its infancy, people were contorting the React component system to fulfill, well, I mean, you know, basically a front-end component system, a, a, a visual component system, they were contorting it to do behavior that was non-visual, I suppose, because the basic data flow aspects of React were so desirable that they basically wanted, you know, people wanted non-visual components, and React just had to to uh, to evolve over time to to accommodate the non-visual use cases in a in a better fashion. It's more about composing that non-visual behavior. React has always been able to handle it really well. With before hooks, we had class components and they had life cycles, uh, like uh, did mount, did update. Uh, so you could you could do these non-visual behaviors after the component mounted or after it updated. So you could you could change the state of a component. And then in response to that, do some side effect that was non-visual. So I don't want to give the impression that React couldn't do non-visual behavior. Well, it, it did a, a great job of it. In fact, I had a better time in React than everything previous that I had used for non-visual behavior. The, the rub was how do you share that non-visual behavior? It was easy for like an application-specific component to do these kinds of side effects. But it was hard to then take that and turn it into like a reusable chunk of code that someone else could use. And that's that's what Hooks brings. It, it doesn't let us do anything new, except it lets us compose that behavior in a, in a better way. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. There's a, a term that I've heard associated with the life cycle of, of components called uh, prop drilling that apparently you, you've coined this term. Can you, <laughs> can you explain what the term prop drilling means? A uh, long time ago, when I very first started using React, I was working at an education company called Instructure, making a learning management system. And I wanted to, uh, I, I really loved React. I'd been goofed around with it up on my own. And we decided to start adopting it and using it for some of our new code. So I was trying to come up with a little mini workshop for my team, like a little two, three hour thing. And I, I was just trying to think of the topics of like, what do you need to know to use React well? Like in a, in a couple hours, what, what do you need to know? And one of the things that uh, I really focused on in there, in that material, was uh, this idea of prop drilling, uh, which is in React, you're, it's like HTML. You can, you can kind of think of React components like your own custom elements a little bit. And if you've got state in one component, uh, maybe high up in the element tree, and you want to get that state down low to something you know, something down at the bottom. Maybe you've fetched all your users at the top of the app and you're making a whole list of those users. And then like maybe maybe all the way down, there's this little avatar component for just one of the 100 users on the page. And you want to get that, that user's avatar down to them. You've got to pass that user object several layers down. So you take it from the parent component, pass it to one of its children. That children takes that prop and passes it to the next child. And that one takes that prop and passes it to the next child. And so you may find that you do that, you know, five, six, 10 levels down. And when it really happens is when you start refactoring, you start identifying pieces of your app. Like, like you, you identify the avatar component itself, where maybe that was just in line of your list at first. And you're like, hey, let's make an avatar component. So now you got to pass that user to it. Uh, so that's that's what I what I called prop drilling. It's like you have to drill this whole 
through all of these components that maybe don't really care about that prop, but they need it just to be able to keep on passing it down the tree. And then the, the second part of that is to get data from down low in the element tree back up to the top. Maybe someone like clicks uh, delete user or something, and that's all the way down six levels in some user component. Uh, you've got to get that action that they want to delete the user all the way back up to the component that owns it. Maybe you're six levels up from there. And so not only do you have to drill that prop down, this is why I came up with the word drill, is it's not so much about passing the prop down, it's about sending the information back up. Uh, so if, if you send, send that data down six levels, you also have to send a function down all of those six levels. That's like the hole that you drilled to then be able to like throw that information back all the way up the tree. You run React training. So these concepts that you're explaining, these are things that you teach in workshops and training scenarios. When you're teaching professional developers React, what are some of the common misunderstandings or confusion points that you encounter? Oh, I think one, well, really, really just JavaScript, pretty much. Uh, we, we like to joke that our workshop is actually just a JavaScript workshop in disguise as a React workshop. So yeah, there's there's a lot of just kind of JavaScript education that goes along with it because uh, React gets out of your way really quickly. You know, once once you get the basic idea of elements and components, it's really just JavaScript. It's almost uh, one of our instructors, David. Uh, he's like, JavaScript's almost mean about that it puts JavaScript in your face. <laughs> Outside of that, just, just how the render life cycle, that takes a little bit to help people understand how that works because you're just looking at a function and somehow magically you call set state inside of there and then everything updates and all your variables are brand new inside of the function. What does that mean? So we got to talk about function closures and scope. And before hooks, we talked a lot about JavaScript context and this, the this keyboard keyword doesn't work quite the same in JavaScript as, as most people expect it to. Yeah, and then I guess we've kind of touched on this, that there's a misconception a lot of times that React can't manage state uh, when that's half of what the library is, is managing state. So you don't you don't have to bring in Redux or MobX or some other state management thing. You can, we did it for a couple of years before Redux even showed up. So yeah, Redux or React can, can manage its own state. I don't know if there are any other common misconceptions other than that. I'd like to talk to you about the broader space of React application development. And one thing I've talked about to a couple other guests recently is the type of frameworks that you can use when you're building a new React application. So today, as, as I understand, the most prominent frameworks are you have Create React App, which is typically for more boilerplate applications. You have Next.js, which is for, I guess, more sophisticated applications. And, you know, when you want some complex choices of server-side rendering versus client-side rendering, for example. And then you have Gatsby, which I guess is kind of its own its own thing. How would you contrast these frameworks? They all have, I think, their their sweet spot, but they're all they're all very capable. Uh, Create React app is probably the simplest one. It doesn't do any server rendering. It doesn't do any... It's just like you want to do a React app, but you don't want to learn Webpack. <laughs> it's basically what Create React app is for. So you, you can just, from the command line, say npx create React app, 
my app, whatever the name is, and it'll just give you a big, big boilerplate for what people call a single page application. So there's there's no server. It's just a JavaScript bundle. You can deploy that deploy that anywhere. Now you can use Create React App and then server render that thing, but you're going to have to write your own code for that. So uh, Create React App will create the the bundle for your app, and you can actually then take that bundle and server render it yourself. Uh, but yeah, like I said, you'll be you'll be writing your own code there. So if you just want to get started with React, that is absolutely absolutely the way to go. Our I think our website for a little while. No, it was our own thing, but it wasn't it wasn't really different. We didn't do server rendering or anything, and we still got organic Google search result hits, and you know it all all worked out fine. And then you've got so let's talk about Gatsby. So Gatsby, it's not only this, but it's kind of the way that helps people understand it the most is think of like a static site builder. I used to use one in Ruby called Nanook, I think. There's a really popular one in Ruby. Ah, shoot. I forgot what it's called. Jekyll? Is that what it is? I don't know if that's Ruby specific. I've definitely heard oh, okay. of Jekyll. Okay. There's uh, Hugo. That, that's a static site builder, right? There's there's Hugo and Jekyll. I think those are both static site builders. Yeah. Yeah. So the idea is you you can write some code. It's sort of like you're on a server, right? Like you get to build these abstractions and, and share code and use code to generate your user interface. But at the end of the day, you're just going to ship some HTML. So there's a little build process to take uh, your code that then spits out some HTML. And then those are just flat files that you could like upload to a CDN or something. So like I said, Gatsby isn't just a static site builder, but that's kind of its foundation. You can still build really cool dynamic things with it as well. So what it does is it'll it'll take all of the that static markup, but then when the page loads, it then kind of layers the React app on top of it. So I guess it's server rendering. <laughs> it's CDN rendering, flat file rendering. So that's the fastest way to do it. And then the JavaScript downloads and kind of layers over the top, a client-side router, the events, dynamic behavior, all that kind of stuff. So now as the user navigates around, Gatsby has already eagerly loaded the pages that they're probably going to go to next. Well, it's not that smart about it, but it'll preload uh, the other pages in the app. So now when you click on a link, you're going to get there instantly without like a full server hit. And then Next.js, they've made some changes recently that I haven't kept up on. I've been pretty busy over here working on our company. But Next.js also has the same ability that Gatsby does to compile it down to a static site that then layers JavaScript on top of it. But it it goes a step farther and actually does some server-side rendering. So your code actually runs on the server when the user hits the page. This allows you to do more dynamic things. For example, fetch some data. Uh, they've got some some hooks in there. Get, I think it's called get initial props or something like that. Or they may have changed it. When the user hits the server, the page, you can go fetch data just like a normal server rendered app and then render that data in your UI. With a static site like Gatsby, you can't do that. You'd have to know your data at build time, right? So now, now your data is limited to when you built and then you'll have to go fetch new stuff. So, so Gatsby doesn't really work for data that's going to be changing a lot like like tweets or something, right? You want to see somebody's, some new posts that are like happening a lot. Not great for Gatsby, but next you can do that kind of a thing and get that more more dynamic data in the server render. They probably have other stuff in there now too that, that I don't know about, but that's, that's kind of the difference is your code actually runs on the server before you send the page. Got it. The next thing I want to talk to you about is GraphQL. So I know that if you're 
a sophisticated React developer. You're you're often building your new applications using GraphQL, but it's obviously not a necessity. When you're talking to people that you're teaching React, do you try to prescribe that they should use GraphQL from day one, or do you just kind of ignore GraphQL because it would introduce more complexity? Yeah, with our workshops, we don't we don't cover a whole lot with with GraphQL. It's a really interesting technology. We're in the middle of building something new that we're not we're not ready to announce or anything yet, but um, we're we're going to start with GraphQL from from the beginning. I was talking to some people from my my previous job, and they've started using GraphQL and having a lot of success. It, it is a great way to work with data over a network. You know, like <laughs> you you have two choices. You can either, I guess, you got three choices. You either build one off endpoints for each screen that you build, right? So here's this is our grade book. So if I'm going to render this grade book, what data do I need? And so you can make an endpoint on your server that says here's all the data you need for the grade book. Or you can do like a, a more restful approach. And if you take rest to its logical conclusion, then most of your UI, you're going to have to be making like 70 requests <laughs> to the server in order to get all of the data that you would need for a, a more complex UI, or, or at least a dozen, right? You're going to have to hit a lot of endpoints. And then the client, you're going to have to construct that stuff back together uh, into like objects and stuff or, or build those relationships inside of the client. Uh, what would be best is if we could just send SQL over the network, right? Just send a SQL query over there. <laughs> or SQL. I never know how I'm supposed to say that. So I kind of think of, of GraphQL as being able to just send a database query over the network. It's it's a safe, safe query language for the network. So you can just say, this, this is what I need. Instead of writing a, a SQL query, I write a GraphQL query. And uh, how that's handled on the back end you know, there's there's a lot of ways to do it. You can you can have a, a GraphQL first API, I guess, uh, database, something like Hasura, if you've ever heard of that really cool project. Uh, it's it's backed by Postgres, or you have your existing REST API. You have your existing databases. You can build a layer in front of it so that your client applications can just send GraphQL, and then your server. Instead of your client, your server can then figure out, okay, what are the 12 REST endpoints I need to hit to get all of this data? Because if the client has to do it, then every page that needs that data has to do this. And every app, your, your Android app, your uh, iOS app, your handful of web apps, all of them are going to have to be doing these shenanigans of like getting the whole data for this complex page together. So GraphQL, especially with like a node server in between your client apps and your real database is a really great way to just like simplify all the code and all of your clients and give yourself a query language over the network. You and your co-founder of React Training, Michael Jackson, you're both known for helping create React Router. And I'd just like to get your perspective on React Router and how its usage has evolved over time and how the, how the project has evolved over time. Yeah, it's like <laughs> we we released that as we were learning React. So like you can just look at React Router and the APIs and you can just see the two of us learning React is is really probably the best way to describe it. Yeah, so in the in the beginning, actually the very 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 first one we had was was one of our better ones and then uh and it was so early everyone wanted data or they wanted uh server rendering and all this other stuff and 
we didn't know what we were doing. And so we kind of came up with these APIs that were okay. And that's what V3 is. So versions one, two, three are all, all almost identical. We had to make a couple of tweaks to a couple APIs and break them. But uh, version one, two, and three are, are basically the same thing. And we still support V3. You can run React Router V3 on uh, React 16.9, I think is what we're at right now. Thanks to Tim Dore. He has been uh, diligently maintaining that for years. One day, Michael and I had given a workshop. I can't remember the city we were in, like Chicago or something. And we were standing at the elevator because we just finished the workshop talking about React Router. And we were just talking about how awkward it was for us in our workshops because we would do these two days, show people all these cool patterns, different ways to compose with React, different ways to share behavior and state. And then we'd get to the lesson on React Router. And it was like, forget everything we just taught you. <laughs> it doesn't work here. And so we were like, what have we learned now about React that we can take to React Router? And that's where React Router version 4 came from. And it was big API change, upset a lot of people. But I mean, we were learning React with everybody else too. And we were just a couple of guys trying to run a company. I think it was a good choice. And it just made everything a little bit more dynamic. Like you could, you could, and I keep using that word composable. Uh, it'd be hard to really explain why the React Router API was more composable without like throwing some code in front of us. But um, it took all the principles of React that uh, we taught in our workshops and that as a community, we had all kind of learned and we applied it to React Router. And we just kind of hung out like that for a few years, honestly. I think three, four years now. We haven't we haven't touched that API. <laughs> Maybe we're a little bit scared of, of getting everyone angry again by changing an API. Because React, React is pretty much always backwards compatible. But for a library like React Router, it's, it's a little bit harder to maintain that because we're like a level away from React, right? So if we want to use the new React features, we'll probably end up breaking something in ours. But anyway... So we went a few years, no API changes, and now uh, we just released on uh, Friday last week, uh, React Router version 6 alpha. So 4 and 5 are, are pretty much the same too. We, had to, we made a little change in there. We added some, some hooks in version 5, but we didn't break any API there. But v6 now, we've updated all the code to use hooks, and uh, we've, we've made it a whole lot smarter we have like this matching algorithm now that gets rid of a bunch of problems that we had before with that people had to do themselves constructing up their routes. And it's half the size of what it used to be. So it's it's got a whole bunch more features. It's more composable. It's smarter. We have these things called relative routes and links now. You used to have to construct the entire URL for your link. Now, now it's smart enough to just inherit the link above it or the route above it. Yeah, and it's half the size. So we're, we're really excited about it. We've got even bigger plans for it as well, but uh, we want to get this to a stable 1.0 release first, or sorry, 6.0 release. On the subject of routing, whenever I'm using a native app, routing always feels so much smoother than when I'm using a browser-based application. Why does routing and state transition for native apps feel so much more smooth than if I'm on the browser? Oh, probably because React Router is slow. I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so what's funny about a web app is, instead of a website, I guess, is that you're actually an application inside of an application. A native app, that you get the whole screen. You get everything. You can even control the color of the status bar. In a website, you don't even get to control what happens when they swipe from the left side of the screen. 
or when they start scrolling, what happens to the UI, you know, on, on iPhones anyway, the, the whole UI shifts around when you start scrolling, the address bar shrinks, the buttons at the bottom slide away, and then you scroll up and then everything shows up again. You just don't have the control and like, like swiping left to like navigate back on native on an iPhone. You can't do that on the web because that is already built in for what, what the browser does. So there are interactions that we just, they don't let us do because there's no way to say, hey, web browser, get out of here and let me do my own gestures. And then, uh, yeah, I don't know. Web browsers just aren't as good at animating as, as these devices for some reason. Like like an I, like an you get an iPad Pro. I got a big, I got one of those big iPad Pros, like the, I don't know, they're like 11 inches or something. I don't have one. I have like a an old bad Kindle Fire that I don't use anymore, but I have okay. not really, I have not been subsumed into the world of tablet computing. Yeah, so I've I've got this big iPad Pro, which is actually like a great digital audio workstation with GarageBand. It's really cool experience. But anyway, its screen is basically as big as my laptop screen. And you go into the iBook store, which that's as big as a screen that our browsers normally have on our computer. And it's got some great animations and great interactions. And so I started goofing around trying to build something like that. And I don't know why, but web browsers just don't animate that stuff as smoothly. And I'm I'm using straight up CSS transforms and, uh, you know, should all be hardware accelerated and it just, just doesn't have the same feel. So I don't know. I, I'm with you. I have that same question. Why, why can't we make those animations feel that nice? However, on native, it is very difficult to deep link. That's like a big topic on native. How do you deep link? And it happens all the time, right? Like you get out of an app and then you come back in and you're not where you wanted to be on the web. We don't have that problem. Deep linking is like, that's just what we are. Like that's, that's how it was designed. So maybe it doesn't animate or feel as smooth, but uh, we do have some some stuff that's built in that I think is pretty cool. Continuing the subject of various things related to React, why is TypeScript used in so many React applications? Why is TypeScript useful? I don't know. You're talking to a guy who's never used a, a type language before. You could tell me why it's not useful then. <laughs> So we actually, uh, this week, have just begun the rewrite of React Router into TypeScript. And uh, last week, uh, we have a project called ReachUI, and we just switched that over to TypeScript as well. So I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not a TypeScript hater. TypeScript is pretty cool because, so the reason that we're using it in our libraries is not so much for us, but for everybody else. So if you install React Router and you're using TypeScript, it's like half of people building React apps now at least half of our clients seem to be using TypeScript. So if you're in the React game and you're you're building shared components, like you can't ignore TypeScript. And so we were doing our own types just as separate files, but we weren't actually authoring in TypeScript. But then they get out of date or they might be wrong. They're just a risk there. So we were like, let's just do it. Let's just write it in TypeScript. And so reason number one is because everyone's using, or not everyone, a lot of people are using TypeScript and we want our types for them to be reliable and for them to know that they're going to be correct. They're not just some afterthought. So that's the first reason we did it. The second reason is the IntelliSense, the the hints, the pop-ups when you're writing your code are really cool. We document our APIs. We have all these different types of, of properties that our components can take. And, you know, people don't read the docs. <laughs> so if you're using TypeScript, you start typing like a route or like a, a menu button or a combo box. And you get this nice little pop-up of exactly what props it takes and what those types are. That is huge for people. If you haven't done it, you don't quite get it. You're like, oh, no, I know. I know the React API. I'm fine. 
but you get into a code base with a lot of shared pieces. It is really nice to be able to know what types it accepts and if you're doing the right thing. The application architecture for something built in React, it's evolved as new primitives have gotten introduced into the programming framework. And we've talked about hooks. We've talked about Redux. There's also Suspense. Suspense is a newer primitive that can help with asynchronous data loading. How does Suspense improve the application experience for the end user? And and what does the programmer do to use Suspense? They've been goofing around with Suspense for a long time. And it's it's really promising. I'm really excited about it. But it, it is still... It is still yet to be seen what what that's going to shake out to to look like or be. But the idea is in React, when you change state, you click a button, you click a link to a new route, and the screen changes. Uh, a lot of time, you need to go and fetch some data. And in React, it's not going to wait for that data. It's the new screen shows up. And so we've all used these apps where you click something and then you get a, a, a face full of spinners. And then you get like this really choppy loading experience as all these different spinners finish loading their data. And now you've got a page. And with a slow network, it's not terrible, right? You click, you get some immediate response from the UI that that your click worked. And then you get a bunch of spinners. And then, you know, if you wait a second or two or five seconds, it's fine. The data shows up and you're not, you're not too upset. The app was, the app felt responsive the whole time. The problem shows up when the app is or when the network is fast (laughs) because when the network is fast you click a link and then it's like some pages with their spinners and stuff it's like i don't know it's just like it's so bouncy and so flashy so quick you know within 500 milliseconds you see several things show up and then disappear and then new things show up so it just it just feels terrible when you have a fast network and synchronous rendering is i guess what we could call it so, so to, to fix that problem, you have to move all of that data loading logic higher and higher and higher in the app until maybe you're at the very top. And you don't have a whole lot of control over when to finish that transition to the next page. So um, you can move all the data up to the top and always wait for all of the data. So you click a link. Let's just keep the old screen on the page and just sit here until all the data shows up and then go to the next page. And so that'd be great for a fast network because you're going to click a link and you'll feel like you get there pretty quickly and you weren't sitting on that page. But for a slow network, that's terrible because now you're just looking at the old page for a really long time. And maybe you got six pieces of data and four of them are there and they're the four that matter. The other two are just some who knows what. And so it would be nice to be able to transition to the next page if you had those four pieces of data, even though you don't have the other uh, two. So suspense lets us kind of bend all of those trade-offs Instead of having to like move all of our fetching code all the way up to top, you can keep some of it closer to the UI that needs it. You'll still want to probably move some of it up, but that's a that's a different conversation. And then suspense will uh, allow you to kind of like adjust to the network. So if the network is fast, suspense is going to let you wait for all of that data so that we're not flashing spinners at people. But if the network is slow, maybe we'll hang out on the old page for a little bit after you click a link, and then. You know, we've got four of the six pieces. It's been two seconds. Let's, uh, or one second, let's go to the next page and show them the content we have, but then have spinners up for the content that we don't. So it's, it's, really, it's really a set of tools that are going to help us declaratively orchestrate this kind of stuff 
it probably sounds like you have to do a lot more than what you really need to do. Uh, you don't have to like specify, okay, these pieces I'll wait for, these ones I won't. But just by placing some components in the right spots, we'll be able to bend all of those trade-offs and be able to give a great experience for people with a fast or a slow network when you've got asynchronous stuff. Another thing that's kind of cool about it is you can kind of force the order of asynchronous things. So imagine a bunch of images on the page and like a bunch of tiles, let's say. And when all those tiles come in the wrong order, it kind of like feels weird to the user. But there's this thing called suspense list and that will allow you to say, hey, you can show like loading indicators on these things, but don't do them out of order. So if you've got 12 tiles on the page, if the 12th one loads, it's not going to show up until the 11th one loads. And so it gives this really great experience where like they all kind of like load in in order instead of the choppy like whack-a-mole kind of feeling. So yeah, just lots of little tools, not lots, a couple little tools to help us orchestrate the asynchronous behavior that we have in a user interface to try to get rid of the choppiness, get rid of too many spinners and get rid of the whack-a-mole feel when a page loads up. There's a large market of people who are teaching JavaScript and people who are teaching React more specifically. Has it gotten too crowded have, are there too many JavaScript educators at this point, or has there never been enough JavaScript education and the market is just starving for more information about JavaScript? Uh, you know what You know what kind of cracks me up is, you know when somebody makes a blog post or something or, or tweets or whatever, and then somebody else is like, yeah, this is just, this is just computer science from 40 years ago kind of thing, you know? Like we, we already knew this. You oh, thought yeah. that you you think that you're the one coming up with this new new idea or this new programming language or this new framework is just reinventing ideas that we already knew. That always kind of cracks me up because what that means is that the programming community has failed to teach what it has learned to the next generation. Like we're not going to reinvent those concepts if they were continually taught from when they were discovered. And so, yeah, I, I think th there are lots of people that are amazing programmers. There are lots of people that are amazing communicators in the kind of like the, the Venn diagram, the intersection. I think there's a lot of people that have both of those skills. We just haven't really rewarded the communication side very much. You know, we have this, this stereotypical idea of the hermit programmer who like just wants to be left alone and has no social skills when that's like, that's, that's not, that's not how it is at all. There are so many interesting programmers who, who can communicate well too. I think we're just now seeing that with the internet, we're able to incentivize people to actually teach what they've learned. I don't feel like it's crowded. We're growing. We're, it used to just be Michael and I, and now we've got some employees, we've got some contractors and we have a team of like eight people now running our company involved in one way or another. And, uh, and, and we're still still growing. So no, it doesn't, doesn't feel crowded to me. So uh, one of the things that I do to check, like uh, to kind of try to estimate how many people are using React or Angular or Vue or, or anything is to look at the, the Chrome's, the developer tools for React on the Chrome, uh, what's, what's it called? The Chrome store. And there's like 2 million people who have the React developer tools installed. 2 million. That's a ton of people. And that's just React. So I think there's plenty of room. So it's true. It's really hard to benchmark how many developers there are in the world. Yeah, there's tons. Oh, there's tons. And like we mostly do training for uh, companies in the US, although we got people going to Ireland and Australia and shoot, where else? We got like four international ones coming up here soon. But we're mostly in the US. But our, our online stuff, 
our online stuff is mostly outside of the United States. You know, it's easy for me as someone from the United States to just kind of think about like, that's the whole world when it's, it's totally not. So yeah, online, man, you can, you can reach, you reach everybody. And there are tons of people out there wanting to learn how to program or get better at it. All right. Well, Ryan Florence, it's been really great talking to you. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Yeah, thanks for having me. 